Well, good morning, and welcome to Trinity Church. Thanks, Seth and Jen, for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, and now the time has come to open up God's Word together to continue in our Advent series. Uh, we are taking a break from our study of Colossians, and we are going through looking at different passages in the Old Testament that get us ready to celebrate the coming of Christmas. And as we look at, uh, at our text this morning in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we're going to be looking at the promise of Christmas coming. And so uh, if you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to open it with me to Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Also, uh, on the way in, you could have got a listening guide. It's a little piece of paper that will have our text. We'll have some space to, to take notes. If you did not get one of those on your way in this morning, you just slip your hand up, and uh, Alex will come from the back and make sure that you get one of those. Uh, but Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, we're going to open together. Uh, and we're going to look at a couple things. First thing we're going to see this morning is whether I can make it through an entire sermon without falling into the blocks behind me, um, because that's just waiting to happen. But the most important thing that we're going to see this morning is we're going to look at uh, what it means that when we say that Christmas changes everything, right? That's been the theme of our Advent series is how Christmas changes everything. And that's, that's pretty big talk, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of you know, hyperbole, right? Christmas changes everything. Are, are we overhyping this at all? I mean, is Christmas really that big of a deal? Tom would say yes. Uh, but why is it such a big deal? Well, to answer that question, this morning we're going to take a look at a time before Christmas came, right? We're going to take a page out of the It's a Wonderful Life playbook. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie it's, it's a Wonderful Life, um, it's it's a difficult thing to, to do in this day and age. But if you haven't seen the movie, it's a Christmas classic where uh, this, this man named George Bailey uh, becomes despondent and he's ready to commit suicide because he's convinced the world would be a better place if he'd never been born. Uh, and an angel comes and rescues him and shows him an alternate reality where he had never been born. He gets to see what the world would look like if he had never been there to make a difference in the lives of those around him. Uh, and through that, he comes to see just how significant his life has actually been. Well, this morning, in order to get a real sense of the significance of Christmas, we're going to look at a time before Christmas existed. We're going to look at a time in the Old Testament before Christ had come into the world and, and look at what kind of world was there then. And when we start talking about this promise of Christmas, how did that promise, how did that promise of this new dawn that is breaking upon the world impact a world that did not have that hope that maybe we take for granted these days? So this morning, we look at another text in the book of Isaiah, 600 years before the coming of Jesus, and it's written in a dark time, right? We're going to be picking up right where Dave left off uh, last week, just one chapter later in the book, the same prophetic speech, uh, and it's talking into a dark time in the history of the people of Israel, but it looks forward to a coming Savior, and it's a text that's going to be probably very familiar to many of us, but I hope and pray that you see it in a fresh light this morning. Try the best you can to lay aside any preconceived notions, any, any baggage, any, um, any familiarity that you have associated with this text, and try to look at it this morning with fresh eyes and see what a profound impact the Christmas story makes and just how astonishing its promises actually are. So join me as we read this morning Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. The prophet says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince 
of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is God's word. That is the promise of Christmas this morning. Will you join me in prayer as we continue? God, our Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us. By your word this morning and by the power of your spirit working within us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, we pick up today in a continuation of the prophecy that Dave looked at last week in chapter 7. Dave talked about the coming invasion of the Assyrians that was being prophesied. He talked about the promise of Emmanuel, of God with us, of this one who would be born, and how that had fulfillment in Isaiah's day, but it looked forward to a greater fulfillment that was yet to come. And And continue on in Isaiah 8, Isaiah prophesies great devastation and suffering that would come with this invasion, that would come with the Assyrians coming into the land. And he says they're going to overrun Israel and they're going to extend into Judah as well. Remember, at this time in history, the the people of Israel were divided into two nations, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And what the prophecy says is that Israel is going to be overrun by this invading force. And in fact, like waves lapping on the beach, they're going to come to the doorstep of Judah as well. The people are going to be lost. They're going to be scattered. They're going to be broken. And there will be no earthly hope for them. Just to give you a sense of what leads into this text that we're preaching this morning, I want you to look with me at how chapter 8 ends, this prophecy of invasion, of darkness. Chapter 8, verse 22 I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 20, uh, 21 says, And they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and they will turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness." That is where the Christmas story picks up this morning. That's the reality that Isaiah prophesies, that these people are going to be plunged into into anguish, into gloom, into thick, oppressive darkness. But yet, hope is kindled as we arrive in verse 9. God's story of his people involves darkness, but it does not end in darkness. The promise is that light is coming, that hope is kindled. And we're going to look at several different images, several pictures that we get in the text of this hope and think about and reflect on what it's saying to us. And so the first image that we get comes in verse 1 of chapter 9 where we're told that God is going to turn devastation into honor. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought to contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So we got to do a little bit of housekeeping right here off the bat. The one thing that we're going to notice is that Isaiah is speaking here in the past tense, right? He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun. In the latter time, he has made glorious. The past tense is used here, and this is something that we call uh, the prophetic perfect, Right? Because Isaiah is prophesying events that are still yet future to him. These things have not yet happened, but he's prophesying events that are in the future, but they are so certain, so certain is the word of God and his promises, that it can be spoken like they've already happened. And so when we read this, even though you're going to read it popping up in the past tense, read this as future promise, future prophecy, that God will turn devastation into honor. And so there is hope. That's the message of verse 1. While they find gloom and anguish when they look to the earth in 8.22, verse 1 tells us that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, what could this mean? Well, verse 1 is going to explain it to us, that while in the former time, so we have this former time where the land of Zebulun and Naphtali were brought into contempt, in the latter time, they are going to be made glorious. So what is this talking about? 
Well, I've got a, a little map that's going to help us maybe visualize this a little bit, if you can put that up there. Zebulun and Naphtali, these are two of the tribes of Israel. So when Israel became, uh, when they came from Jacob, from the one who was called Israel, his 12 sons, if you remember the story of Joseph, these 12 brothers became the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were each allotted different portions of the land. And we're speaking this morning about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in the northern part of the nation of Israel. And the other words that we see pop up here, uh, in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All of these descriptors are speaking about the northern part of the land of Israel. So we have Zebulun and Naphtali called out specifically, but when we talk about the way of the sea, it's a reference to the Mediterranean, to the land of Asher along the north, to the land beyond the Jordan River, which cuts our picture right down there in the middle. This is a, a, a way of speaking about the whole northern swath of the kingdom of Israel, from the Mediterranean all the way east of the Sea of Galilee, which is the little circle up there at the top, and beyond the Jordan River. And so why is he bringing up this, this part of the country? Why is he talking about this region like this? Well, when the Assyrians came, and when they came to invade the nation of Israel, Assyria is north and east of Israel. And so when they entered the land, they entered through that northern region, which means that that northern region of Israel would be the first ones to be overrun the first ones to feel the weight of an oppressive, invading force. They were the first to fall, the first to be brought into contempt. And they would become the pathway by which enemy troops would pour into Israel as they pressed south into Judah, and the pathway by which Israelite captives would be taken from their land and deported to Assyria. And so this region became a place of great sadness. They were the first to fall, and everyone who was there, this would have been the last sight that the people of Israel would have had of their land as they passed out of it, taken into captivity into Assyria. And so in the former time, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, was brought into contempt, into suffering, into devastation. And yet, the promise is that this land of contempt would be a glorious place in the latter time. Why would this be? Remember we talked about the promises that are coming are going to be very clearly promises about Christmas, about the Messiah Savior coming into the world. And in the latter time, we're told that he has made this land, this region, glorious. Well, tucked away in the land of Zebulun was this little nothing town called Nazareth. And this town and the whole region of Galilee would become the first ones to get a glimpse of the hope of Messiah. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. This was the place where he grew up, where they knew him as Joseph the carpenter's son. And as he began his ministry in the north, and he went around the Sea of Galilee, and he began calling these Galilean fishermen to come and follow him, what began of Jesus' ministry began in this land, in a land that had been formerly brought into contempt. Now he made it glorious. It was the paths by which God himself walked the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. The tale of Israel, the tale of Israel in Isaiah's day especially, is one of failure, suffering, and alienation. But what we are going to see in this text this morning is God is promising to turn that story upside down. The message of Christmas is a message of failure and, and alienation and suffering turned on its head. And so God says, the first ones to taste the wrath of this invading army, the first ones to be plunged into deep darkness will also be the first ones to see the glimpse of morning light when dawn breaks upon the earth. They're going to find great redemption coming from the same place that great desolation began. In the Christmas story, the people and places that were previously in contempt are now made glorious. Devastation becomes honor. So this is the first imagery that we're given. Through this geography, we're told that the place where devastation is greatest will be the place where light shines first. God is flipping the story on its head. But he continues in verse 2 with another image, the image of darkness to light. And this is my favorite verse probably in the whole text, just the, the picture that this paints for us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So what we have here is, is what we call a parallelism. It's a restatement 
of the same truth twice in a row with slightly different language, right? He's saying the same thing in two sentences. The people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. He's communicating the same truth in those two lines, but just changes the language up just a bit. This is a common practice in Hebrew poetry. It's a way of expressing uh, emphasis, of expressing exclamation. Whenever you see this kind of language pop up in the scripture with these two phrases back to back like that, saying the same thing, I want you to read it with exclamation marks because that's the intended effect of the language. That's what the the author is trying to get across. And so he's emphasizing here that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, remember, we just read verse eight or chapter 8, verse 22, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Are you starting to see how God is taking that same language that was used to promise this coming suffering, and now he's flipping it again? He's turned gloom and anguish into glory and honor, and now he's turning darkness into light. Because darkness would characterize the whole of the land of Israel under the, land, under the Assyrian invasion. And it would also characterize the land of Judah later on as the, uh, the Babylonians came and they took away the kingdom of Judah many years later. Everything would be taken from these people. Their homes, their families would be broken up. Some would die and perish. Someone would be taken captive back to Babylon. Some would be left wandering, desolate individuals in this land that they barely even recognize. And even when they were restored, if we jump ahead in the story of Israel, the people of Judah do get to come back from Babylon. The people of Israel never return from Assyria in the same manner from which they left. But the people from Judah come back and they they restore Jerusalem and they restore the city. And that's why there is a, a, a Jerusalem when Jesus comes onto the scene. But they were never the same again. They never recaptured their former glory. They never saw this kind of hopeful light shining forth. Their glory was never what it was in the days of Solomon and the days of David. Their land was irreparably changed. It was plunged into deep darkness. In fact, here the word that we have translated as deep darkness is actually a compound in Hebrew of the words shadow and death put together into one word. And uh, Bible scholar Alec Matir translates it as those living in a land as dark as death. Get in your mind that imagery of what a picture of darkness is being painted here. Have you ever experienced total and absolute darkness? You ever known what it's like to be in a place where you can't see anything at all? I remember uh, when Heather and I were first married, our, the year after our, our wedding, we took our first little mini vacation together as husband and wife, and we went to Mammoth Cave here in Kentucky and spent a couple of days down there and got to go through Mammoth Cave and, and see it. It was really, really cool and uh, just a massive place underneath the earth. But one of the things I remember very clearly from that trip is you're going on the tour of the cave, and they take you into this really large uh, chamber there, and they're, they're t- telling you about the history of the cave and all these things. And there's light, of course, that has been put down there so you can see and find your way around. And then they say, you know, they, they talk about what the early explorers who were going through there, how, how difficult it must have been to find their way around. And to illustrate that, they say, we're going to shut the lights off for a moment. And they flip the switch and they shut off the light and it is black. Like, you, I'm holding my hand inches from my face and I can't see it. I might as well have been blind. It's the, the, the most clear picture I can remember ever in my life of total and absolute darkness. And it's a little unsettling, even though we know they told us they were going to turn the lights off, and we know they're going to turn them back on there in a minute. If they didn't come back on, we never would have gotten out of there. And there's this sense of just overwhelming weight when you're lost in darkness like that. Darkness is suffocating. It's paralyzing. You, you can't move for fear of what you might run into, what you might fall over. It brings fear. It brings despair. And our world is full of darkness. Right? This is an analogy that, that hits home, I think, with us today. It, it would have hit home with them with the Assyrian invasion. Um, we don't have Assyrians invading today, but, but if you go and ask anyone that you run into today at, at Walmart, on the street, is this world a dark place? I bet you'll get a lot of agreement. People know that something is wrong with the world. 
Turn on the news, listen to conversations on the bus, just drive through town, and you will, you will be confronted with lots of examples of why something is not right about this place. This is a dark world. It's a world where people live in fear. It's a world where people live in suffering. Something has gone horribly wrong. And the promise of Christmas is that in the land of deep darkness, of a darkness as dark as death, a great light then shines. What would this light be? The light is Christ coming into the world. I want you to listen to the way John opens his gospel. In John chapter 1, I'm going to read you verses 1 through 9, and it's probably a familiar text to many of you. Again, try to leave, pretend you've never heard this before this morning. Block out any notions and just listen to these words as fresh as you can. Here's how John chooses to start his story of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. You know, darkness is, it's oppressive, it's thick, it's suffocating, but it's also powerless to resist light. We could go into Mammoth Cave and we could shut off every light in that place and be buried deep underground and all you've got to do is flip on a lighter and the darkness vanishes and you can see. Light pierces darkness and that's the promise of Isaiah here. Those who are dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And John picks up on that same imagery as he introduces his story of Jesus. And he says, light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In the Christmas story, our world that has been thrust into deep darkness on account of our sin and our rebellion against God has had light shine brilliantly into it. There is a hope that has come and the darkness is powerless to fight against it. The darkness has not overcome it, John says, because it cannot overcome it. Because light pierces into darkness. And so devastation has been turned to honor by the Christmas story. The promise is that darkness will be turned to light. Everything is being turned upside down. This is a fundamental change to all of creation. And then we see that the effects of this new reality in verse 3, where gloom is turned to joy. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. Now think of the stark contrast. Think of how far we've come in just three verses, right? These people at the end of chapter 8 were hungry, Enraged, speaking contemptuously against their king and their God. They were looking at the earth, but distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish. They were thrust into thick darkness. You would be hard-pressed to paint a darker picture than what we got at the end of chapter 8. But as light comes into the world, as devastation is turned into honor, the way of the sea is made glorious, just two verses later, we have these images of joy. You've increased the nation's joy. And we're told, look look at the the images that we're given here, like with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil, right? This was a a farming people. This was an agricultural people. And so there was no more exciting time, no more joyous time than harvest, than when the crops are being brought in, when everyone had plenty. And likewise, when they they defeated an army in battle and they're dividing up the spoil, these are images of a time of abundance, of overrunning joy. And God says, this is what this this change, this light has done. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy from the gloom of anguish to now joy like harvest time. Everything is being flipped on its head from this deep darkness to two of the highest highs that a culture of that time would be able to know and to relate to. And I hope now we're starting to set up a question in your mind. 
right? If you're coming to this clean, if you're not bringing any preconceived ideas, we've gone from deep darkness, from this horrible picture that's painted into light and into joy, this new reality that's dawning on the world. The question is, how can this be? How can honor come from devastation? How can light pierce through the darkness? How can joy come from gloom? How can the Christmas story possibly, possibly justify these things, right? I mean, we, you know, there's, there's nice, pretty flowers and lights, and it's nice, and it makes you feel bright and cheery, but, but can that really do this? How do we get there from here? How do we get to these highs? The, test, the text is screaming for an explanation, and it gives it to us in verses 4 through 7. Hope is kindled because God will act. God will act. God is about to do something beyond our wildest imagination. And we're going to be given in verses 4, 5, and 6, three, we're going to call them because verses. All three verses start with four, for the yoke, for every boot, for to us. So we're now explaining how this marvelous reality that we saw in verses 1 through 3 can possibly be. So we're going to look at our three because verses, and we're going to call them because verses because if we say the three four verses, that just sounds really confusing. So the three because verses give us the reasons that the incredible reversals we saw in verses 1 through 3 can be true. So the first, verse 4, he will destroy the oppressor. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the first because verse promises that God has broken the oppressor of his people. There is no longer a heavy burden that is weighing them down. And he gives us some images, some mental pictures of this burden. And the images are stark, right? The first is a yoke. For the yoke of his burden. You think of the image here, you know, think of you're, you're on a farm and you see an ox that is pulling this plow and it's got the yoke around its neck and it's pulling this massive heavy load behind it. And it's always there. It, it never goes away. It's chained to his neck. It always follows closely behind. It's exhausting. It's unshakable. The yoke of his burden you have broken. The second image sounds a bit abstract in our, in our translation here, the ESV, and the staff for his shoulder. What is that getting at? Well, literally it reads in the Hebrew, the stick of his back. The picture here is of a stick that is being, that is being used to beat someone's back. The instrument used to, to, to hurt, to drive, to push forward. And then the third image the rod of his oppressor, is just giving us the same picture, but it's personalizing it, right? Because the stick's not coming out of nowhere. It's being wielded by someone, by an oppressor. We could also translate this, uh, this word uh, oppressor as taskmaster. The picture is one who holds captive, who drives cruelly, who's always present, pushing, never satisfied. The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. That yoke, that staff, that rod is shattered. The influence of the oppressor is gone, right? What are, what are, what is the yoke? What is the staff, the rod? They're not actual people. They are not the oppressor, but they are the means by which the oppressor's will is exercised on the people. And God says, gone, broken, shattered. And he says that I'm going to do this as on the day of Midian. You have broken these things as on the day of Midian. What does that mean? We need to to back up a little bit in time and look at the book of Judges. This is a reference to the story of Gideon, if you're familiar with Gideon's tale. If you're not, this this is hundreds and hundreds of years before Isaiah's prophecy. So now we're dialing back even further into history to a time when the people of Israel had no king, they had no leader. It was a very, uh, it was a time close to anarchy, right? The, The book of Judges characterizes it as there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And they went through these cycles of foreign oppressors came in because the people were sinning and then the people cried out for deliverance and God raised up a judge and that judge delivered them from their oppressors. And the Midianites were a people who oppressed the people of Israel and after their suffering was great, God raised up a man named Gideon to deliver them. And Gideon was an unlikely leader for an unlikely army. And he was an unlikely leader. He, he 
described himself as an, the most insignificant member of an insignificant family. He was the little guy in a forgotten family in a little podunk town. And so he says, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a leader. God, you surely can't want me to deliver your people. Gideon came out of nowhere, and he was an unlikely leader for an unlikely army. And the army was unlikely because it starts out with 32,000 people. And they were actually outnumbered at that point. But, you know, 32,000 is, I mean, that's respectable. That's half the population of Oldham County. If we could muster up that as an army, yeah, that's, that's nothing to shake a stick at. But God comes to Gideon, and he says, yeah, there's a problem, Gideon. Your army is too big, to which I can imagine Gideon probably saying, like, what? Is that a thing? Your army's too big. We're, I'm going to deliver you, but, but we're going to make it very, very clear and very, very plain that I'm delivering you and not you. And so we need to cut this thing down. And they go through some cuts, and he whittles this army of 32,000 down to 300. So they were outnumbered at 32,000, and now they have 300. And God says, perfect, let's go. And, and he does. And he routes the Midians with Gideon and his 300 guys. He uses this insignificant leader of an insignificant army to deliver his people. So do you see the significance of Isaiah saying, you're going to break the stick of the oppressor like you did on the day of Midian. You're going to deliver your people. You're going to crush the oppressor, and you're going to do it in a way that is unexpected and out of nowhere. So it becomes perfectly clear that it is God who is the deliverer. His promise is to defeat their oppressor with a crushing victory from an unexpected place. And that's exactly what the Christmas story delivers. We're going to dig deep and, and double down on that one here in just a couple verses. But when we read the Christmas story, it doesn't play out the way you think it should. We, we get, I think, hardened to that because we've heard it so many times, but, but it's quite remarkable. It's unexpected, and God uses it to deliver extraordinary victory for his people. So he will, he will destroy the oppressor. Secondly, he will defeat the warrior. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Right? Think about the reasons for the people's darkness. What is the wrath that is coming upon Israel? It's a military force. It's military invaders. It's this grand Assyrian army. They're unstoppable. They're going to be crushing. They're going to overrun Israel. They're going to lap at the banks of Judah. And yet verse 5 says that this unstoppable military force, every boot and cloak of every soldier will be nothing more than kindling for the fire. What a promise this is. Because, okay, we're, we're not Israelites. We're not living in fear of the Assyrians coming over the next hill. But we know what war is. We're familiar. In fact, I would, I would say if we look back through human history, we would be hard-pressed to find a day on this planet where somebody wasn't at war with someone else somewhere. I mean, just think of our own country. I mean, we, it feels like a peaceful time for us, but we've been at war for 16 years now. Many of you have friends, family members, who have been in places like Afghanistan, places like Iraq, other places around the world, fighting, because war is a specter that hangs over us. Our world groans over a sea of bloodshed and battle. It's constant. It never changes. It never goes away. I mean, it, there's no more immovable force that you can possibly imagine than a warrior, than an army, than a nuclear-tipped ballistic missile. Everywhere you look, there is threat. There is conflict. And the picture that's painted here is a stark reversal. That immovable force, that horrific army, that, that warrior stomping in battle tumult, yeah, his boot, his cloak, it's going to burn. It's nothing. It's chaff before God. Again, how? How can this be? Honor from devastation, light from darkness, joy from gloom, shattering of oppression, burning the machines of war to ash. How can this be, Isaiah? How do you fulfill this promise? What is it 
that can possibly bring this kind of hope into a world that desperately needs it? The answer is found in our third because verse, verse 6. And it is stunning. Put away the familiarity and read this fresh. For, all right, we've been building to this. Everything is cranking up to these words. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. What? All of this, this stunning reversal of all these things, we're talking about a baby? This has got to be some kid. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Let's look at what, what is this promised one like? Who could possibly deliver this kind of hope, this kind of reversal of fortune? Well, we're told in verse 6 that the government shall be upon his shoulder. Right? He's going to break the rule of the oppressors of his people because he is going to rule over his people. He's going to replace the Assyrians. He's going to replace the Babylonians. He's going to replace the one who drives with a stick on the back of his people. And he is going to rule over them. He is going to bring peace to them. So who is he? Well, now Isaiah starts to tell us what he will be called. And we find a reality that is, should be as shocking to us as it likely was to Isaiah when he spoke the words and probably didn't even understand what he was saying. Probably didn't even understand how could this possibly be fulfilled. Because the first thing that he's called is the Wonderful Counselor. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, I mean, this sounds nice, right? It sounds like a good friend, a trusted advisor, you know, someone who's, who's a, who gives good advice, who is a, who's a close confidant, wonderful counselor he will be called. And it, that sounds simple enough. But the reality is that there's something far more being said here. Because I want you to, to flip ahead with me. You, know, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but in the book of Isaiah chapter 28, so let's fast forward about 20 chapters in Isaiah's prophecy and listen to what he says. He says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Do you notice what he just did? He attributes the same characteristic to this child as he does to Yahweh God himself. They will call him wonderful counselor. The Lord of hosts, he is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. He's attributing God qualities to this baby that is being born. Maybe it's just coincidence, right? I mean, people are good counselors too. So it's, wonderful counsel is not exclusively a God thing. But if there were any doubt, he clears it up immediately in the next verse, or in the next, the next name. This child will be called Mighty God. El Gabor, Warrior God. This child will be called Mighty God. Isaiah will use this same term in chapter 10 to refer to Yahweh himself. The prophet Jeremiah uses a very similar construction of this term to speak of God in his prophecy. And Hebrew people don't do this. You don't equate God and, and man. You look at Jesus as he walked among the Pharisees and among the religious leaders, how often they cried blasphemy whenever he would dare even come close to equating himself with God. And yet we're told that this child will be a wonderful counselor. He will be mighty God, a son, a child. God will be born as a baby. And he's not done. It continues. The child will be called everlasting father. Ever everlasting. This is the language of eternity. Right? Human beings are not immortal, eternal. This is language that is, that is used of God in the scripture. In Isaiah 57, 15, it's God himself, the high and exalted one who is called the one who lives forever. Exodus 15, 18 declares that it's Yahweh who shall reign forever and ever. God is eternal. God is the one who was and is and is to come. God is the one who introduced himself to Moses as I am. 
And yet this kid will be called everlasting father? How can this be? And finally, he will be called the Prince of Peace. These people were about to be thrust into war, chaos, and this child's princely rule will bring bring peace. Can you think of a promise that would have been more longed for? A people thrust into deep darkness, crying out under oppression. But unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And he will be the prince of peace. Our world longs for peace. What we have here is a fuller declaration of the truth that we looked at last week in Isaiah 7. God is promising that he will come and dwell among his people. Emmanuel, God with us. And he will rescue them. And he will deliver them. That is is the promise of Christmas. Not that that some baby was born in a manger and it makes for nice pictures and postcards, but that God became human. A child was born named Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. It should shatter our minds. This is the kind of story that can justify the hype that can justify the hope that has been promised. Because we're promised that the government will be on this child's shoulder. And that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Have you ever stopped to think about that line? That always, to me, used to just be a throwaway line. It's just something that the text said. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's actually quite a remarkable promise. Once this Prince of Peace comes and the government is placed upon his shoulder, his reach and his reign will increase eternally. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His rule will go out to the ends of the earth forever and ever and ever. And he will sit on the throne of David, verse 7 on the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is a promise that the people of Israel would have caught and clung to instantly because David was the great king. David was the model king. He was God's man, the man after God's own heart, on the throne, led over his people with righteousness and goodness. And God made a promise to David that the throne, the kingship would never depart from his house, from his family. Listen to this promise, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. This is God himself speaking to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this promise was given to David, and in Isaiah's time, they would have seen that God had fulfilled it to a degree. David's son Solomon did build a house for the name of the Lord. He did build a temple. And God was with the Davidic kingship. And when they committed iniquity, he he did discipline them. And that discipline happened through the years, and it's coming to a head in what's about to happen with the Assyrians and the Babylonians coming in. But the promise is, Saul, who was before you, David, he, he committed iniquity and I left him. I removed the kingship from him. I will never remove the kingship from your house. Despite discipline, despite chastisement, your throne shall be established forever. Well, how? Because right now there's a Davidic king on the throne in Judah, as Isaiah speaks. Ahaz is king. But when the Babylonians come, the line will be broken. There will be no more king 
when they return from exile, no descendant of David is going to sit on the throne. But a baby was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And it's not a coincidence that the gospel writers open their accounts with a genealogy tracing his lineage back to the line of David. Because one sits on the throne of David forever. The prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. No foreign rule is going to overthrow him. No internal bickering and squabbling can ever negate his influence. He is the great and promised king who will uphold David's throne with justice and righteousness forever. This promised king, the child who is born, the son is given, will be the perfect fulfillment of what kingship looks like. David and Solomon and all the other good kings in that line are are just glimpses and pictures leading up to this one who will come and be what the king is supposed to be. He will uphold the throne with justice and righteousness forever. God will rule over his people. And this will be accomplished by the zeal of Yahweh himself. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Why, how, how is God going to do this? He's going to work according to his goodwill, his passion, his great love, his, his loving kindness, his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love is going to drive him to fulfill these promises to his people by sending a child, by sending a son by coming to live with his people and establish his rule forever as Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. We sang that this morning. This text sings for us. Do you hear it crying out for this reality? This is Christmas. This is how Devastation becomes hope. This is how darkness gives way to light. This is how gloom and anguish become joy. Because a child will be born, and he'll be God. Christ has come. That is what we gather to celebrate. That is the reality that has come breaking through into our lives. But Christmas seems so quaint, right? We're going to go through the motions over the next couple of weeks. We're familiar with the story. It's a cute little family with a cute little baby and a cute little stable and cute little animals. And it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy and we hang up lights in a tree and we get together for good food and warm drinks and to give Aunt Mabel an iPhone that she'll call us for the next month because she doesn't know how to use. This is Christmas. This is what we do. And it's great. And we're going to spend time with people that we love. And we're going to do all the things that we, that we, really, we really just look forward to. And we'll have pictures and it'll, it'll be fantastic. But the biblical picture of Christmas is anything but quaint. There is a reality that undergirds this that is unshakable. The biblical picture is of a crushing darkness, an inescapable oppression, and a Savior who is too amazing to imagine. He will put an end to war, literally. He will put an end to oppression, Literally, he will rule over this world with justice and righteousness forevermore. Literally. This is not just some spiritualizing of like a slightly better earthly existence where we all are happy and get hot chocolate. This is a declaration that these things will happen. And maybe we sit here this morning and maybe you feel deep darkness and you wonder, how how can these promises be true? Right? I mean, Jesus has come, but the world still feels like a dark place. I still feel the weight, the burden of oppression. Our, our world still cries out with those who are lost in battle. Well, the promise is that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And it has. And it is. And it will. Think, think about Jesus' life. He's born, he dies, he rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, he sends his Holy Spirit upon his disciples, these 11 guys who were not the A-team exactly, 
And we go from 11 scared guys in the upper room in a backwoods corner of the Middle Eastern desert to today, millions of believers bowing the knee to Jesus across North America and Europe and Africa and Asia. Every corner of the globe right now, people gather and they worship and they speak of the coming of Christ. They speak of these promises fulfilled and they look forward to the day when his rule and his reign continues to increase and then he returns and he he does it perfectly and he sets all things to rights and he fulfills totally those promises that we see in verses four and five. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of oppressor, you have broken. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel from the fire. It, for the fire. It will happen. He will do it. That increase happens as the gospel of Jesus' life and death and resurrection overcomes our greatest oppressor. In fact, the oppressor that gives birth to every other oppressor are sin and rebellion against God. That's the true darkness that, that the light must overcome. Is the fact that I, I'm a sinner. God has given me so much. Life, breath, health, joys, family, friends. He's given me so much, and yet, yet I and, and everyone else, we, we reject him. We reject his word. We say, you know what? I, I know better. Adam and Eve did it in the garden, and, and every single man, woman, and child ever since. We turn our own way. We rebel against him. We plunge ourselves into deep darkness, a darkness as dark as death. But to us, a child was born. To us, a son was given. And he came. And the Israelites expected, even, even those who believed in him, most, most thought, hey, this is just the carpenter's kid. Does anything good come from a podunk town like Nazareth? They dismissed him. But even those who believed thought, okay, we're, we're looking for a king. He's going to drive out the Romans. He's going to do the political thing. He's going he's to break the staff and the rod and all that great stuff that Isaiah said. But there was a different staff that he had to break first. The hold of sin over the lives of his people. And so he his kingship was marked not with a golden crown, but one of thorns. His robe was the purple majesty of a king, but it was cast onto his broken, bleeding body in mockery. And he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our mistakes, to break the staff on my shoulder, to shatter the rod of your oppressor. And he rose victorious from the dead like we proclaim in the creed. And he offers that whoever calls upon his name will be saved. For God so loved the world, as Tom read earlier, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And that is the offer of Christmas that goes out to us this morning. If it's the first time you've ever heard it, then believe. Embrace Christ. Repent of your sin, of your rebellion, of trying to do it your own way and follow after him. Follow the Prince of Peace. Listen to the wonderful Counselor. Bow your knee to the mighty God, to the everlasting Father. And if this isn't the first time you've heard it, then hear it again this morning like it is the first time. And let your heart be amazed. Because no Assyrians are coming for us. But we are indeed a people who walk in a land as dark as death. This morning, look to Jesus. And see, not a Christmas tradition. Not just a name. Not just a ritual. Not just a religious act. But see a great light. That has dawned into your heart through the message of the gospel. And so we wrap our time in God's word this morning by celebrating communion, by remembering that this child who was born, this son who was given, is the same Jesus who offered himself up for your sin and mine. And so we're going to enter into a time of reflection. We're going to read a passage from God's word. We're going to examine ourselves. And then we're going to enjoy these elements that remind us of this Jesus, of this Christ.
then we're going to continue in worship, and we're going to celebrate this reality. And we got two more weeks of this before we arrive at the day. We're going to continue to look through the Old Testament next week, look at more promises, look at more longing, look at more yearning, and then on Christmas Eve, Tom is going to open up the Christmas story, and he's going to lay it bare before us. And we're going to see this Jesus. We're going to see the, the promises fulfilled, the realities, the longings made true. And so this morning, let's prepare to continue in worship. Let's, let's focus our hearts on Christ now by remembering his atoning death and his resurrection. Read with me, if you would, this passage from 1 Corinthians as we focus our minds on what we're about to do. Uh, please read the underlined portions with me. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, he says, For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We're here this morning to remember Jesus Christ. Not as a memorial to a distant, long-dead man, but calling our attention to the one who dwells within us when we follow after him. And so we come here this morning, we remember the Christmas story. We remember these promises from Isaiah. And this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I hope that you will remember that that same child, that same wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, is the one who let his blood pour out for your sin and mine. Remember and rejoice at the hope that we have that he will come again, that he will make all things right, that he will break the staff of our oppressors, of all oppressors, because he has broken the staff of our chief oppressor. And so in just a moment, the band is going to come up, they're going to play, uh, and give us some time to reflect. And I would encourage you to, to, to reflect on who God is, reflect on these truths that you've heard today for the first time or like the first time all over again, and thank God for his goodness. Thank him for, for he, the fact that he keeps his promises. Thank him for his atoning death, for his victory over death. And then when you are ready, I invite you to walk to the back, tear off a piece of the bread, Dip it into the wine, and as you taste those things, remember this God. You're proclaiming the death of Christ, and you're proclaiming that he will come again, and that we will live with him forevermore as his, his reach and his reign expands for all eternity. If you're a baptized believer in Jesus, then we invite you to join us as we take communion. Uh, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, if, you're, if that's not your story, we would ask you to hold off on communion this morning uh, and consider these things. Consider the claims of Christ. Consider these promises that they could actually be true, that they could actually mean something to you this Christmas. And we'd love to continue that conversation. Come grab me, grab Pastor Tom, Pastor David, and, uh, and let's start a conversation about these things, about your questions, about your doubts, about your fears. Let's introduce you to Jesus Christ, to this Christ. And so I'm going to ask Seth and Jen to come up. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to encourage you, spend some time, reflect. If you have sin that, that you feel weighing upon your heart, confess that to God. And, and thank him that grace is abundant and it's offered to you through Christ through his blood, through his body, through his resurrection. Let's pray. Father of grace, thank you for reminding us that your promises to us through the Christmas story are beyond our comprehension. God, don't let us become cold and callous to these things. Don't let them become so familiar that they don't spark our hearts, that they don't jar our minds, that they don't call our gaze and our attention upward to look on you, to gaze on this son who is given, who turns devastation into hope, 
who turns darkness into light, who turns gloom into joy. God, we need that this morning. We all need that in the depths of our souls. We need deliverance from our sin, from our rebellion, from our selfishness, from our pride. And we need Christ. And God, there are many of us in this room this morning who who have other situations that remind us that darkness still hangs over us. We're suffering. We're afraid. We're anxious. We need to be reminded that there is a wonderful counselor who walks with us. There is a mighty God and an everlasting father who stands guard over us. There is a prince of peace who rules over us and dwells within us and quiets the soul. God, as we take the bread, as we take the wine, as we remember your body broken and your blood spilled out, God, may we be lost in wonder at what you have done and what you continue to do. God, in our hearts this morning, in our church this Christmas, in our lives from this day forth and forevermore, be glorified. May we proclaim this great Savior this great light. And may we show him for who he is. These things we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.